Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for being here with us today. Now, in what is without question a Christmas cinematic masterpiece, and I'm referring to Ron Howard's live action version of Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Cindy Lou Who asks the Grinch, who is disguised as Santa at the moment, what Christmas is really all about. And the bitter, lonely, small-hearted Grinch angrily replies, Vengeance. Vengeance. Now, thankfully, the Grinch would eventually learn that Christmas is not really about vengeance. However, as we'll see today in Isaiah 11, Christmas does have something to say about judgment. If Isaiah 7 told us about a baby born of a virgin called Emmanuel, God with us. And if Isaiah 9 told us this baby would be Israel's perfect king, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Then Isaiah 11 reminds us that the tiny, adorable, helpless infant in our nativity scenes is also the righteous judge of all creation. Of course, the word judgment carries some negative connotations with it these days. We picture a red-faced preacher yelling at people, a stranger who seems a little bit too angry to actually have good news to share, or a religious huckster trying to scare people into buying his books. But judgment in the Bible isn't all about wrath, condemnation, and suffering, though that is undeniably part of it. Judgment is also about God setting a broken world right. And in this fallen world we live in that desperately needs help, in a world where many of us are more concerned about justice than we ever have been before, then the promise of the righteous judge in Isaiah 11 can actually be very good news. So open up to Isaiah 11, chapter 1. Feel free to follow along on the screen, in our Bibles if you need to, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. And of course, you could follow along in a Bible that you brought. Novel idea, isn't it? But with that, let's pray before we go further. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together to worship you. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity to slow down and sit in a chair for an hour, a little bit over an hour, and in some ways be forced to think about you because we need to think about you. Uh, Part of Sunday morning is just developing that discipline of teaching ourselves to remember starting with just an hour a week, that there is more to this life than the hustle and bustle of Monday through Saturday. Uh, There is something bigger, something better, something grander going on, and you are the author of it all. And so, Lord, help us slow down and remember uh, that life is more about about more than just the rat race. Uh, It's about more than just getting ahead It's about more than just achievement or even survival. Uh, Life is about 
worshiping you. And I pray that worshiping you for a little over an hour on Sunday morning would then spill over into the rest of our lives and the rest of our weeks. And so thank you for Sunday, uh, this built-in reminder of who you are and what you've done for us. And Lord, I pray that our worship would be honoring to you today. Uh, The songs that we sing, the words that we say, the conversations that we have, the hands that we shake, uh, the relationships that we build, it would all be honoring to you here in this place, amongst these people on this morning. We love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who brings us all together. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we've seen over the past two weeks, in the original context of Isaiah, the king of Assyria is bearing down on God's people, the nation of Israel. And Assyria's oppression is a form of God's judgment against his people for their sin. Namely, their persistent idolatry. Because of this sin, and because they have repeatedly ignored God's gracious warnings and failed to change their ways, Israel will be overtaken by Assyria and exiled from the promised land they call home. As we saw last week, this would prove to be a time of great darkness for God's people. An utter disaster from every angle you consider. However, this judgment would not last forever. God promised back in chapter 9 that one day a good king would come to save Israel. But then in chapter 10, we see the other side of the coin. And that's what God would do to Assyria. Isaiah 10 verse 5. God says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. God's using Assyria to punish Israel, but God is also going to punish Assyria. Verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. Verse 16. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors. And under his glory, a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forests and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. That sounds harsh. But we need to keep in mind that judgment and deliverance go hand in hand. In the same way that one man's trash is another man's treasure, one man's judgment is another man's deliverance. In this case, what's bad for Assyria is good for Israel. Verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, 
O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. You saw what happened to them, right? Book of Exodus. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder, and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. Assyria will be judged, and Israel will be delivered. That takes us to Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So first question, who is Jesse? Well, Jesse is the father of Israel's greatest king, King David. But the kings who followed David failed to fill his shoes. Some were better than others. Many were downright evil. But none of them were the royal son of David that God had promised in 2 Samuel 7. The king who would reign righteously forever. So after generations of failure, David's family tree was looking more like a dead stump. There was no life there. But then Isaiah prophesies that when you least expect it, out of that rotting eyesore of a stump, there will come a branch. And this branch will bear fruit. So who is the branch? Well, first, he's someone filled with God's spirit. Someone unusually wise. Someone holy. Someone obedient to God. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, describe him as one who will reign as king and deal wisely. Who will execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Another prophet, Zechariah, states that this branch will build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. So what will this branch do? Well, to put it simply, he will judge. 
More specifically, he will judge rightly. He will do what is good in God's eyes. He will be just, impartial, and equitable. And yes, that includes punishment for the wicked. It has to. Look again at the words of verse 4. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. We talked two weeks ago about how biblical prophecy often has multiple fulfillments, short-term and long-term. So who is this branch in the short-term? Well, to be honest, we don't know for sure. There are no obvious candidates in the immediate context of Isaiah 11. But who is this branch in the long term? I think we can answer that question with a bit more confidence. Ultimately, Jesus Christ proves himself to be the branch of Isaiah 11. He's the royal son of David who bears fruit, unlike all the others before him. God's spirit rests on Jesus at his baptism in the Jordan River. Jesus is wise and understanding, perfectly obeying his father. Jesus judges righteously and pulls no punches against the wicked. He alone is faithful. Psalm 2 speaks of a righteous king. The Lord's anointed who would judge the wicked kings of the earth. In Luke chapter 1, Mary's famous Magnificat, especially verses 52 and 53, Mary speaks of the baby in her womb scattering the proud, bringing down the mighty from their thrones, and sending the rich away empty. That's all judgment language. In Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, a man named Simeon announces that many in Israel will fall and rise with this baby's arrival. That too sounds like judgment. In Matthew 3.10, John the Baptist, one of the forgotten figures of Advent who is still very important, John announces that because of the one who comes after him, Jesus Christ, the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear fruit will be judged. Jesus' first sermon in the Gospel of Mark starts with the words, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. In John 5, Jesus boldly claims that God has given him the role of judge in the final day. And lastly, in Matthew 25, Jesus says that when he returns, he will act as judge. He will separate the sheep from the goats. So to make a long story short... We should understand that Christmas is about more than just a precious little newborn asleep on the hay. This baby, Jesus Christ, has come and will come as the righteous judge over all creation.
But before you tune me out, thinking that I'm being way too dark about Christmas for your taste, remember what we said earlier. In the same way that one man's trash is another man's treasure, one man's judgment is another man's deliverance. Isaiah 11, 1 through 5, makes no bones about the fact that the righteous branch, Jesus Christ, will one day punish sin. But verses 6 through 10 paint a breathtaking picture of the other side of the judgment coin. God setting the world right. And when we imagine the beauty of this fallen world restored to its former glory and then some, then we see how judgment can actually be good news. So turning back to Isaiah 11, verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So just stop and think about that description of our world after God's righteous judgment has come. Read it again if you have to. No more animosity. No more violence. No more danger. No more pain. No more devastation. No more loss. No more injustice. No more hunger. No more thirst. No more tears. No more division. No more sin. Everyone will know the Lord. And according to Isaiah 25, verse 8, even death will be no more. It will be swallowed up forever. I don't know about you, but that sounds like somewhere I'd like to be. But here's the thing. You can't have the glorious restoration of verses 6 through 10 without the righteous judgment of verses 1 through 5. We said earlier that judgment is about God setting this fallen world right. Well, verses 6 through 10 tell us what that world looks like. But that world will not come. That world cannot come until the baby born in Bethlehem who died outside of Jerusalem and ascended to God's right hand, returns in power and glory. In a sense, God's work of redeeming our fallen world has already started. But in another sense, this world will not be ultimately set right 
until the righteous branch of Isaiah 11, Jesus Christ comes as judge. It's no wonder, then, that in the pages of Scripture, judgment isn't exactly the boogeyman that nobody wants to talk about the way we sometimes treat it. In Psalms 96 and 98, the heavens are glad, the earth rejoices, the sea roars, the field exalts, the trees sing for joy, and the rivers clap their hands. Why? Because the Lord comes to judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. We see similar imagery in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. Creation groans as it waits for the fullness of God's redemption to appear. And the book of Revelation ends with the phrase, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. A phrase that many Christians would adopt for centuries at the end of their letters, the end of their writings, the end of their prayers. Come, Lord Jesus. We long to be with Christ in the world that he has promised in Isaiah 11. In that sense, we live in joyful anticipation of his arrival. We live in joyful anticipation for the day of judgment. So believers in Jesus can look forward to the day of judgment. We don't cower in terror when we think about God's judgment. We are not racked with uncertainty about where we will land. We don't dread the day of God's presence. It's something we pray for, something we long for, something we welcome with open arms. Why? Because we have the confidence to stand on our own merits? No, but because we have confidence in Christ. We know that our sins are covered by his body and his blood on the cross. That's why John can say what he says. First John chapter four, starting in verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. And this is the part I want you to pay attention to, especially. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. We can have confidence on the day of judgment. Because punishment does not await us. Because we know who Christ is. And because we know what Christ has done. Now, that being said, we Christians should not be glib about the day of judgment. Because while judgment and condemnation are not synonymous, punishment is an undeniable part of God's judgment. 
Remember what we read in Isaiah 11, verse 4. So while we no longer fear the day of judgment as followers of Christ, there are many in this world who do. And that should break our hearts. That should give us motivation to share the gospel generously with those around us. As we saw in Isaiah 11, we want people of all nations, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, and our family to be with us in God's world set right. We want them to see the lion lie down with the lamb the same way we will. We want them to see Christ in all his glory. So thankfully, the Grinch was wrong. Christmas is not about vengeance. But is Christmas about judgment? Well, yes. And as strange as that may sound, that's good news. Jesus' birth assures us that evil does not win in the end. More than that, we learn much later in Jesus' life that even those guilty of evil, those who deserve to be struck with the rod of his mouth and killed by the breath of his lips, among whom we were once numbered, those people can be saved and forgiven and reconciled to God by faith in him. And it all starts with this baby in an unassuming manger who is much more than just a baby. He's the righteous judge of all creation. And when he comes again, not as a baby from a virgin's womb, but as king and judge with the clouds of heaven, then and only then will we truly experience the good news of great joy for all the peoples that began with the first Christmas in Bethlehem. Jesus' kingdom will come once and for all. Sin will be eradicated. Death will be swallowed up. Satan will be defeated. And our fallen world will be reborn. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. As the waters cover the sea. And Emmanuel, God with us, will be with us. So may we all say, may we all pray, come Lord Jesus this Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this day. And thank you for these promises that you give us in your word. Thank you for the promise of judgment. As weird as it sounds to say that. Thank you for the promise that evil doesn't win in the end. Thank you for the promise that though this world is a messed up place by our sin, by the sins of others, this world will not be messed up forever. That one day we will stand in your presence, living in your place under your rule as you've always intended. But that only comes with Christ, that only comes with Christ's return. And so as wonderful and as awe-inspiring as Christmas is to think about the manger and think about the shepherds and think about the wise men and 
Think about the good news of great joy that came at this baby's birth. Lord, remind us that even better news of even greater joy comes when this baby returns. Not as a baby, but as king and judge over all. Lord, give us confidence for the day of judgment. Remind us that our place in eternity, our place in your kingdom, is not determined on our merits, but is determined on Christ's merits, because he is our righteousness. And Lord, help us long for the day of judgment, not just so that we can see wonderful images of lions and lamb lying down together, Not just so we can see a place of no more violence and no more pain and no more sorrow and no more destruction. But so that we can see your presence in all its fullness, in all your glory. Lord, thank you that you are gracious and merciful and kind. And that we who deserve to be judged, we who deserve to be destroyed with the rod of your mouth and killed with the breath of your lips... You have offered us forgiveness. You have offered us salvation. You've offered us grace through Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that we would remember that for ourselves and share it with others this Christmas. Maybe people we haven't seen in a long time. Lord, may we make known this good news of your first coming and this good news of your second coming and long for the day when all will know you. And the knowledge of you covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Again, Lord, we thank you. We love you. We honor you. We worship you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.